Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my 5-Minute Food Facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast on YouTube, simply hit the red subscribe button, or on your favourite podcast app, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. I will also mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions, and it's not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with my friend and all-round excellent person Paul Bennett. Out of school Paul studied nursing and specialised in renal care. His career has included studying a Master of Health Services Management and a PhD, working as an honorary professor at Deakin University in the School of Nursing and Midwifery and then researching in the School of Medicine at Stanford University. Paul is currently the Director of Medical and Clinical Affairs at Satellite Healthcare in California, USA, and we'll hear more about what they do during the podcast. So Paul's curiosity has led him into some interesting research areas focusing on improving the well-being of patients undergoing dialysis. One of those areas is laughter therapy. We'll talk about that and much more in today's podcast. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Thank you, Amanda. So, Paul, I always like to understand something about the background of my guests and their motives and motivations for doing what they do. So, Paul, you're an accomplished athlete. In the 1980s, you were in the state athletic squad, and I believe that you specialised in sprinting 100 and 200 metres. Um, do you have a favourite memory from those times? Uh-oh. I was an accomplished athlete. Not I am. I was. The, You're too modest. The memories, the memories are, are a bit are a bit grey. But I think the, the the memories that most live with me are the camaraderie of you know a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old boy sort of getting out of school and, and going and training a lot, um, trying to put one foot in front of the other as fast and <laughs> over 100 metres. And it actually doesn't take a lot of brain work and it's a bit of luck, the fact that you might be faster than someone else. So um, really it's just about the camaraderie, going on trips interstate, which was the first time I'd ever done that. So those are the yeah, things fun. I remember. And life, I suppose lifelong friendships that develop from that. Yeah, like uh, like my husband. That's how we know each other, <laughs> isn't it? Do you, do you still have your state tracksuit? I, I don't have my state tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike my husband, Chris. <laughs> the, the South Australian tracksuit, which was bright red and yet with a bit of yes. blue, wasn't particularly um, uh, good for the figure, I didn't think. So. <laughs> it's, it's gone a long time ago. Imagine you saying it's not good for the figure of a 17-year-old fit boy. Imagine what it looks like <laughs> on a 55-year-old. <laughs> Anyway, leaving that aside. So then I think after that you moved on to uh, triathlon and you've done, I believe you've done some Ironman races. Is is that right? Yeah, it's a bit odd for someone to go from 100 metres to yeah. uh, to doing something over 10 hours. So 
um, there's there's a little bit of history. I, we moved to um, Sydney and I was in Sydney. I had a relationship breakup, a long-term relationship breakup, so I basically had no friends and I dabbled in, in triathlon and, <laughs> and um, the way to get friends is you train for an Ironman triathlon and you train for three, four, five, six hours at a time so no one can get away from you. So you know, that, that <laughs> gets you um, a few friends and um, okay. or not. Um, but you can't really get away from each other. So that, that was a really good way of developing further friendships when I was in Sydney and, and uh, not knowing many people. So which ones have you done? Oh, just Foster. So when the Ironman was in Foster, it's now in Port Macquarie. But yeah. Foster. And I was pretty ordinary at, at Ironman, that's for sure. I was a pretty ordinary triathlete. But it was a goal, and I suppose that's what it was. It was just a goal to keep me busy and to to keep me focused on doing something. Yeah. And, and I love, yeah, I love the exercise. I love doing the exercise. Yeah, it was more about the training really than the race itself. Yeah, I'm the same. I love doing it too. I'm I'm a, I'm sure you're being modest, but I am an ordinary triathlete. But I I just love it. It's fun. The the cycling, the training, good people nice fit and healthy pursuit so now I think you seem to be just by looking at your Facebook you're more into cycling is is that right uh, yeah pretty much that's the easiest and most sociable part of triathlon is cycling so um, yeah. you know to have that sort of um, easy exercise on your limbs unless you fall off and and that there's a little bit of adrenaline that goes in with riding with blokes same age as you and and uh, trying to keep up with people who are better than you um and yeah cycling's one of those things that the more you do the better you get so um so that's something that that you can always work on and um and really i don't need to race i don't race cycling i, I ride with lots of guys who do race but i wouldn't trust myself in some of those cycling races so i just like to ride with them so my training which is in the morning is you know is is my racing moving on to your career paul you um you're the director of medical and clinical affairs at the satellite healthcare in california in the usa and i believe that institution aims to improve the quality of life of dialysis patients and your interest in research area focuses on the improving the well-being of patients with chronic and end-stage kidney disease. So before we dive into that, though, just to set the scene, can you just give us a potted version or history of your career? Um, yeah. I started off, um, started straight out of school and became a nurse, which wasn't that normal for 18-year-old um, boys to go straight into nursing. I had a particular yeah. reason that um, I was a little bit, a little bit rebellious as a 17, 18 year old, and I basically wanted to get out of home. And nursing paid money. Um, so instead of going and doing a teaching degree, I went and did a nursing degree, which you also got paid for doing. Um, little did I know that um, I'd be studying for the next 20 years of my life uh, because <laughs> that's just how it worked out. So uh, so I finished, I, I finished there and then um, tried to climb up the ladder, I suppose. So you have these aims and goals similar to. The athletic side of things and um, so I got up the ladder into management pretty quickly and um, and I have about a five-year cycle of getting bored with jobs so after that period of time I then um, did my PhD and worked at Flinders University and then worked at um, Deakin University in Melbourne and then went and worked at Stanford University where I've um, 
came across some satellite healthcare people and, and who run dialysis clinics. So therefore, um, I could do sort of direct research with dialysis patients and, and doctors and nurses. So, Paul, um, why the US? Why did you end up there? Um, I spend my life um, following women. So my wife got, got a <laughs> job um, in, in the US with Sanford, uh, which is in San Francisco, and um, I was in my dream job at Deakin University where I was Professor of, uh, of um, Translational Health um, at Deakin Western Health. Um, and I'd done that for a few years, which was great. But there was this opportunity to go to America, which was in a bit of an adventure for me. So, yeah. so we uh, packed up and took our 12 or 13-year-old son at the time and um, it was a pretty good experience. Over there. You are an expert then in kidney disease and dialysis. So what drew you to that area of nursing? Why, why the kidney? Um, so the last place I was in my <laughs> in my nursing placements as a student was in in kidneys in renal and um, they were looking for dialysis nurses so um, I uh, said yes and um, and have never left since <laughs> yeah great <laughs> so it's a bit of um, circumstances being in the right place at the right time I think just being in a place at the time I think that's a bit of a, a, a lifelong yeah. sort of theme with me you just happen to be somewhere <laughs> and and uh, and you make the most of it yeah, that's great. Can you explain to us in in basic terms, you don't need to get too medical, what are the functions of the kidneys? Uh, well, most people know that um, they get rid of waste um, that are mm. both protein-based and muscle-based um, and pretty much um, it's fluid and the stuff that we don't need. So the kidney is a filter and it gets rid of um, uh, water, uh, nitrogenous wastes, potassium phosphate, those things that don't get excreted by uh, through your bowel. So that's pretty much it. But it also regulates a lot of other things. So it regulates blood pressure, red blood cell um, uh, development, bone development, and, and some mm -hmm. things that we probably don't even know about that the kidney does. So the really weird thing is the kidney, you know, is the size of a, a very small, you know, golf ball, kidney-shaped golf ball, and, and, um, and it can't, it does hundreds of things, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing that there's that you think there's still things we don't know that it does. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what what happens then when when they don't work properly? Uh, so it, because it's a filter, and filters mm. either get damaged or they get diseased or they get cancerous, um, or they they the filter either either totally disintegrates or yeah. slowly slowly. Um, um, uh, doesn't filter anymore so it can either let too much stuff through in this filter or it cannot let much through and it can't let the right thing so it can often thicken this filter a membrane the most important thing i think about the kidneys are that they're a very vascular or they have lots of blood vessels um, right and, and so any vascular disease such as high blood pressure um, will affect um, the kidneys just as much as they affect every other important organ um, the smallest blood vessels are in your eye and the second smallest blood vessels are in your kidneys so if you do get some sort of damage or atherosclerosis or high blood pressure that's making these bleed then you've always got some some um, kidney disease there so everyone's born with well most people i guess are born with two kidneys can you live with just one uh, yeah a lot of people have lived with one and, and don't actually know okay. that 
Oh, okay. Mm. All right. Uh, and so I think you've sort of partially answered my next question uh, with high blood pressure, but what are some of the risk factors then for kidney disease? It's because it's so vascular, it's pretty much the same as, as the other vascular diseases that we get. So right. And, and um, strokes and those sorts of diseases. So, so the risk factors are being obese, um, yeah. uh, which can cause diabetes, and there you get another risk factor. Um, smoking is not good for the kidneys, like it's not good for anything else, um, and high blood pressure. So it, they're the main contributors. So if you can control some of those what we call modifiable factors, so we can yeah. modify our, generally our weight, we can generally modify our blood pressure by taking our medications or by having a good lifestyle. We can generally modify our smoking um, amount. Um, and, and so, so it's, it's pretty much the same as others. So we, we, we really slot the kidneys in with the other major uh, vascular organs. So looking after your health in general will also look after your kidneys. Yes. The sounds of it. H- however, yeah. however, um, genetics play a lot to do with it. And some people will live right. wonderful lives and healthy lives and they just happen to um, have some immune complex that happens to damage the kidneys um, that, that you can't do anything about. Yeah, one of my friends in Hong Kong, he was a um, pretty handy rugby player, so he was really fit and he had kidney disease and ended up, I don't know what kind, I can't tell you, but he ended up getting a transplant from his father. So they each then had one kidney. Well, he probably still had three. You don't take out your kidneys when you... Oh, right, you don't. No. But don't you have to rewire it up to re-plummet to the new kidney? Yeah, you do. But, in fact, when you put it in, you actually put it in your groin. So you, although your oh. kidneys are sort of in your lower back, uh, when the transplant surgeons put a kidney in, they put it in your groin because, therefore, it's less uh, a less distance to travel um, for the blood, to travel to the major blood vessels that are going down through, oh, right. through uh, your groin and also it's closer to your bladder. So they need to stick. A, um, the ureter to the bladder, therefore that's a far easier place. Oh, okay. Well, I never knew that. So you just leave the old the old kidney there well, in limbo. Well, the, the, <laughs> the, the kidneys are often, have often shriveled up. So if you're on dialysis for a long time, oh. they often just shrivel up to nothing and don't actually oh, right. do anything anymore. Um, there are some diseases where they do the opposite and they actually become massive and, and polycystic kidney disease where you get major cysts. Um, occurring in your kidney. That's the, one of those diseases where you actually get bigger kidneys, but most people, right. kidneys will actually go smaller and, um, and until they basically don't work. If you do have kidney disease, what are the treatments? Uh, so, so it depends what sort of kidney disease you have. Um, mm. Generally, um, the kidney disease that most people know about is, is chronic kidney disease where you have this damage of the filter over a long period of time and often you don't know about it until it's too late. And therefore, mm. um, you go to your doctor, you get these symptoms of fatigue or, or, uh, or anorexia where you don't feel like eating much. Um, and they realise that, yes, your kidneys are failing. Um, and that's the chronic side. You also can get an acute kidney disease where um, you can you know, be um, running a marathon, for example, and get severely dehydrated or you can um, have a heart attack and you don't get enough blood to your kidneys. Your kidneys actually are very clever. Um, they're smarter than the brain, we believe, because um, we uh, because they, they actually shut down to protect the brain. 
um, to protect the right. major organs. So this acute kidney disease, you, your kidneys actually just stop working and they stop functioning and they basically shut down, don't work and allow the rest of the body to uh, to generate and, uh, and to, to live. And this is what happens in some of these um, COVID situations where you have this massive um, um, attack on your whole system and, yeah. and and so you then go into acute kidney disease. What we then have to do is we then have to provide kidney dialysis um, usually through a tube in, in your chest that goes into your heart until the kidneys come back to life again. And often that's 14 days, two to three weeks, that often your kidneys will okay. regenerate themselves and then come back to normal. Now you'll sometimes have some residual problems, but that that's, um, that's happens with, with these diseases. The chronic part of it, however, there are treatments and, and like you said, your friend had a transplant. Um, you can get a preemptive, what we call a preemptive transplant, where if you know you have dialysis and you know you have a brother or sister or mother or father or um, someone who's not related, they can actually um, um, provide you with a kidney and you don't have to go on dialysis. That's not right. that common, although it's becoming more common. And now, but and then normally you would go on dialysis and you would... <laughs> Sorry about that. That's my dog. That's all right. We would go on to a, a transplant. You would go on a transplant list um, and you would either wait for a person to be brain dead and then you get their kidneys or, or one kidney and or you also organise a, a um, relative to um, or a, um, a non-relative. There are altruistic donors. So there are people who walk into a, into a hospital and say, I know I've got two kidneys. I want to give one kidney away. Um, we used to send those people away because we used to think they were lunatics, but there is a process now where um, we can, as long as you're doing it for the right purposes, um, there is that possibility. Several countries, it's quite interesting because a lot of different countries have very different um, uh, methods of allocating organs deciding who gets what, and there's a lot of ethical aspects about it. But we haven't got time for that. (laughs) No, that can be another day, another day. If a patient Mm -hmm. does have dialysis, which is um, a machine that filters the blood, I guess to put it in very simple terms, how long does it take and how often do they need treatment? The the general, um, the normal dialysis that most people know about, which is on the machine where you stick a needle into a vein and you have your run being, have your blood being filtered through a filter on the machine. It takes about four to five hours and we need that three times a week. Um, there is another form of dialysis which is called peritoneal dialysis where very someone very clever in the 70s worked out that there's blood that's flowing through the peritoneum which is the, the um, layer surrounding all of your abdominal organs and that you can put fluid inside the peritoneum, a special type of fluid, and it can sit there and the peritoneum can act like a filter. It's quite amazing and it's quite... Wow. So there are two types in general, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. Peritoneal dialysis you need to do every night, usually overnight, and you put yourself onto a machine and it puts in fluid and takes it out, puts it in and takes it out. And then you've got the whole day to yourself. And some people also go home on the dialysis machine, the hemodialysis machine, and they can do it all night and then they wake up in the morning and their treatment's done. Uh, that's, that's the preferred type of dialysis because you can get a longer treatment. Yeah, okay. So can people choose which type of um, dialysis treatment they, they want or does it depend on what kind of disease you have? Most people in Australia um, uh, could do both. Some people uh, um, who have had, say, previous abdominal surgery or 
um, have had diverticulitis, which is a disease of the bowel, mm. um, they may not be appropriate. But generally, the, a, a kidney specialist will talk to a patient and get to know them for quite a long time, and then discuss the pros and cons of each of each form of, of, of dialysis. Right. And so, what are the negative side effects then of dialysis? Like, like anything, um, when you're sticking needles in these, and they're big needles, when you're sticking needles in people three times a week, you're going to get some, some maybe some um, pain there. There's general pain in general because they have bone disease, they have muscle disease um, uh, and, and other issues. Um, uh, like I said, most people do have some sort of fatigue. Some aren't, some don't, but, but a lot of people do, and particularly after a, a dialysis treatment, particularly if they've dropped their blood pressure through the dialysis treatment because most many patients who are having dialysis, they don't produce any urine after a while. So if, oh, they, right. if they didn't have dialysis, then they just fill up with fluid and burst basically. Um, and what, what then happens then over the four or five hours of treatment, we need to take about two to three litres, so two or three Coke bottles worth of, of um, fluid off a patient plus all of the waste. Uh, so that sometimes causes them to drop their blood pressure. And also right. we know that by pulling fluid off quickly, it actually can potentially damage other organs and we're finding out more and more about that. Um, but generally patients um, might feel a little bit tired after dialysis. Um, they might have headaches and sometimes they get cramps because we're taking this fluid out of them. Um, generally patients have, felt, have explained it to me that they can feel like they've got a hangover. Oh, okay. After dialysis, oh, yeah, that's that's not the best feeling, is it? <laughs> no. So, so if you if you're going to have that three times a week, that's not something that you look forward to. No, no, it's not. So this is a good time to move on then to to your research. So I think it's it's generally understood that dialysis patients have a lower lower happiness than the ordinary population. And so your research focuses on improving the well-being of, of those patients. And I think it has, well, it has several arms, but two of the main ones are resistance exercise during dialysis and laughter therapy. So let's talk about the exercise first. So why does resistance exercise help? And also what kind of exercises do they do? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, basically... Uh, Lots of, and it's just not my research, there's probably about a team of, I don't know, there's probably three or 400 people in this area in the world, so it's, right. it's not particularly unique to me. Um, but we all do different things and we all try to get patients to move more. <laughs> Basically, that's it's that simple. Uh, whether it's resistance exercise, whether it's someone who likes to use um, TheraBands or weights um, during dialysis or after dialysis, or whether they want to use a stationary bike or whether they want to cycle more um, or, or walk the dog or go shopping. It, it doesn't, it's not, that's not what we're really concerned about. So we are looking at ways of, of suiting our dialysis, our exercise programs to, to dialysis. The thing with the normal three times a week for 30 minutes a day type of, type of um, uh, advice that we often give is that, Patients on dialysis will be feeling crap one day, but they'll be feeling great the next day. So, so they, they'll do it when they can, you know. So there's a lot of things right. about people on, on dialysis and kidney disease that don't actually fit into, into the normal side of the thing. Um, so, so the resistance exercise, we believe, is really important because 
patients with kidney disease lose muscle mass and muscle function a lot quicker than what you would normally do. So we normally, as we get older, we lose muscle mass and function, um, but they will get more and more because of their inability to to eat well, um, to move around in general, their muscles become less and less. They also have a a bone disease. Um, that is particularly um, associated with kidney disease and having weak bones, having um, uh, having weak muscles and having to sit on a dialysis machine three times a week for five hours at a time. Um, all of those sorts of things uh, actually make you a little bit um, physically um, less functional than you would be if you weren't on dialysis. Yeah, okay. So I guess the resistance exercise is a fairly safe way then of... It sounds like uh, the risk of fracture might be higher for some of these patients. So that, That's true. That's true. And so we, we need to be careful. We're generally very conservative with our medicine, so we, we don't want to tell someone to do something and then go and break their hip and then they die. Yeah. You know, that's not what we're on about. But we also want to encourage them to have a quality of life, whatever that means, so we don't want to stop them from doing what they want to do. Yeah, fair enough. And what about laughter and humour therapy? I, to be honest, I'd never heard of that before. So, what is it? Well, not everyone likes it. Not everyone likes exercise, but most people like to laugh. But not everyone likes to laugh. Funnily enough, <laughs> um, so, so which we found out. Um, so, um, so laughter therapy was sort of developed out of um, out of a couple of meetings we had with uh, a guy who's known as the Professor of Laughter or the Professor of Happiness um, and a, um, a guy called Bob, oh, I forgot his last name, and he was he's now retired but he was a professor at Deakin University, psychologist. He developed all of these um, uh, really good tools to um, to measure someone's happiness, what we call subjective well-being. So that's the, that's the psychological thing of, of long-term mm-hmm. happiness. So this is not just yeah. being happy for one minute, this is sort of, your, your long-term type of happiness. And so we did test dialysis patients, and, yes, they were unhappier than, uh, than someone who wasn't on dialysis. Out of a scale of 100, they were about 10 points lower on these scales yeah. um, overall, which, which makes sense, you know, because of all of the it things does, that yeah. they've got to go through. So, um, so we thought, well, what can we do? We can exercise, but not that many people will take to exercise. About 50 or 60% will exercise. And so we tried to combine laughter with exercise and some people would have heard of laughter yoga which is um and there's that so the reason why it's called laughter yoga is that there's a form of meditation type of deep breathing that is about you know how you're feeling yourself and some of the mindfulness aspects of of yoga and um and so you combine those two you get an experienced laughter yoga teacher in a dialysis clinic and and it does wonderful things for patients who are just sitting there bored um, and not doing anything, and if you can get this laughter going, it's fantastic. So, so people are laughter therapists. They they are everywhere in the world. Um, they do um, because there are lots of people who want to give back something to the yeah. community. Um, you can do laughter courses. There's a laughter university, so it, it's quite a well-known uh, um, therapy. The trouble is, it's not in a pill, so you can't just say here you go yeah. laughter um, because it has. A- so it's. N- it's not then, Paul, it's not a comedy act, is it? No. It's, uh... so, so just to run you through it a little bit, um, I, uh, you would do some warm-up exercises. So patients are sitting down on dialysis, okay? So you would do um, some neck and some upper body sort of exercises. Then you would 
being retaught how to deep breathe. And often that's sometimes the best thing that these people do. And you get them to, to put your hand on your diaphragm and your, and your chest and, and you can feel these muscles working. And then yep. you do, uh, you try and get them to laugh and you do these chants and you do laughing. And what happens is one person will start to laugh and then the next person and you've got a group of maybe 12 people who are raucously laughing. And as you know, when someone's laughing with you or has a funny laugh, then that just makes you laugh. So what it is, and this is the important aspect of this laughter therapy, is that it starts off as intentional laughter and ends up being natural laughter. Okay. Your brain knows that, but your body doesn't know that. So your body thinks that it's laughter and so you're getting all of the benefits of a laughter therapy session. It's, it's not like going to a comedy act. So there's five different types of laughter. Whether you want to know this or not, you're going to know it. So there's, there's this laughter, intentional <laughs> laughter. There's a comedy type of laughter where you laugh for a minute and then you stop laughing and then you might laugh again and then you stop laughing. That's not continued. Right. So, so this is a continuum. There's the other laughter like tickling. That's another form of laughter. There's happy gas, which is another form of laughter. And there's also a laughter you can get if you have a brain tumour. That's not a very nice laughter and people... There has been one case of someone laughing to death with a potential brain tumour, but we, it's a bit of an odd case. I shouldn't laugh, yeah. No, 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 it's not very funny. And, 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 so, and, and so this laughter is this type of forced intentional laughter. And if, if you do laugh and you put your hand on your diaphragm, you realise all of those muscles that you're using in your core and, uh, and, and all of the other benefits that go along with that as well. So it's, it's a form of exercise. Um, that's what, that's uh, what. Physi- yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it also has that other um, mental, mental, emotional. Yeah, exactly. So there's two, there's two aspects to it: the physical um, side of it, exercising your diaphragm and whatever else that does, and plus the mental side of it. Um, so I have read that um, laughter does improve mental health, and so. How how does that occur? What what is it about laughter that improves mental health? Do you think? And there's it's not what I think. There's studies being done. So laughter increases um, dopamine that makes you euphoric, similar to a you know a, an exercise type of thing. Endorphins yeah. as well. Um, it produces uh, more oxytocin and serotonin. So there there are certain hormones that are very well connected to um, uh, feeling good about yourself that are stimulated by laughter. The other things that these hormones do is they're very healthy for you from a cardiovascular um, status. So although normally people on kidney disease, their vessels are fairly ordinary anyway, so that, you know, they're, they're sort of they're there because they have vessel disease. Um, this laughter can actually um, make them at least their heart to go a bit better there it's shown to have stroke volume improvements um, following myocardial infarctions it's shown to have um, uh, improvement in your diabetes control so there are certain things that um, that has definitely been seen but it's very difficult to get research money for laughter because no one thinks sort of takes it seriously and so this is the yeah. challenge that a lot of laughter researchers have but if you ever go and and attend and be in a laughter therapy session for in between 30 minutes to an hour, you know how you feel afterwards and it's great. And and you feel exhausted but you also feel great um, when you attend a yeah. really good laughter session, which is what 
potentially these patients hopefully will do. Yeah, one of the things I like about the sound of that is that it's a very non-invasive way of um, improving somebody's mental and physical well-being, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it sounds like the benefits of laughter could be applied more broadly than, than just to patients um, going through dialysis. Do you know if that's been done at all? Um, there, there are examples, really good examples around the world of um, laughter therapists doing some fantastic things, not in dialysis. Um, there's a, there is a, a laughter therapist who's also a registered nurse <clears throat> who works for the University of Southern UCLA, San Francisco, and she mm-hmm. is a laughter nurse and she has a full-time job in the hospital in this major wow. San Francisco hospital and she wears a white coat, she has a laughter and she's busy the whole time and people can't believe when she walks into their room and sits down, has a chat to them. You can't just walk in and start laughing because people think you're crazy, <laughs> okay? You have to yeah. actually develop this rapport. So she does this and then she gets into this laughter and so you have people with cancer, you have people with depression, you have people with um, all sorts of chronic diseases um, who start laughing. It's the best job in the world that she has. I was going to say, she must have the most amazing job satisfaction. And, and so she's one of our last therapists who does work with us in, in San Francisco and teaches others also to, to, to do that. And um, people, last therapists go into prisons, um, so which is scary, you know, and they'll sit down in front of 100 cellmates and, and do this laughter session. And of course, it's the best thing that, that the, the prisoners have, have done for ages. Uh, all sorts of stuff, but particularly in, in mental health, um, there's a lot of therapists in there. And, and laughter is just one tool. You know, not everyone will want to be go through laughter therapy, and it's not always yeah. the right thing. Um, and we found that about 20% of our dialysis patients, it's just not for them. And, and, right. and, and that's okay. And, and they can, you can just move them a little bit away or, or, or pop them away or they can leave their headphones on and, and that's not a problem. So it isn't for everyone. Yeah. And I guess also some days you might feel like it and others you just might not. You might just be having a bad day for whatever reason and you don't feel like laughing. But, but, it, but if, if it's only 20% that, that don't um, feel like it, 80% is a pretty good take-up. Yeah, it's more say. than want to do exercise, that's for sure. So there's a, yeah. there's, we keep about 50% of our patients doing exercise. It depends on how, um, how often how good-looking the exercise physiologist or the physical therapist is, how... how <laughs> How um, much some of the, the clients will do will do their exercise, but there is a certain um, a motivational aspect that um, some exercise professionals are just fabulous at as well. Yes, um, to yeah. Get people to exercise, like a personal trainer type of thing, you know. And a lot of people need that personal trainer, and dialysis patients aren't any different. Yeah. Oh, that all sounds great. So, Paul, um, before we wrap up, just a couple of topical questions about uh, the COVID-19 situation. So, and you did touch on this, but are people with chronic kidney disease more susceptible to COVID-19? Yes and no. Probably um, it's very similar in the way that, um, that they will get the disease just as easily as you or I. The issue with mm-hmm. patients who go to a dialysis clinic is they can't. It's very hard for them to physically distance. So um, if you're going to a dialysis clinic three times a week and nurses are sticking needles in you, it's very hard to physically distance yourself from someone who's sticking a needle in you. Yeah. But they have more risk that way. Once they've got the, if they if they get COVID, 
they're likely, and we're learning this only in the last couple of weeks, that they're more likely potentially to have um, worse consequences, worse outcomes because of their cardiac disease, because of their uh, uh, different levels of immunity. Um, so yeah. overall, they're a, they're a, a, a sicker person. Um, and often if you get a pneumonia with a, a dialysis patient, um, that's the end of them. Similar if you get COVID, oh, okay. um, it, it can, it, you know, it's likely to affect them more. In saying that, um, so, so our satellite healthcare who I work for in, in California, we have 80 dialysis clinics. And um, so and we've had uh, um, probably about a very similar percentage of patients who are positive. Um, and staff who are positive as the normal, as a, as a normal population. Um, right. So, so we're very um, uh, you know, forward with and proactive with what we do with, with people, given that we know that our patients, uh, once they get it, they're quite susceptible to mm. dying. So, um, so, so it's, it's, it's similar. However, what we have to do is we have to isolate them. And so yeah. we now have COVID-positive clinics and COVID-positive shifts Okay. In in, uh, right. in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, and in generally in California. Because obviously they still need the treatment. They probably need it more than ever. That, that, they've that, got... They do, they do, and, and that's that's the yeah. issue is that um, they're scared to actually go out because we're saying stay at home yet. Yeah. Yet. So we've had to do a whole, lot of, um, a whole lot of making sure that actually patients turn up to dialysis because they feel mm-hmm. that what's worse, not having a dialysis treatment, getting you know, or getting COVID you know it's it's a it's very difficult yeah. for them of course it's a pretty scary situation for them yeah the, the best way um that patients or people with kidney disease can can not get COVID is if they are on home dialysis so they actually do everything at home so uh, yeah. so then they're not physically um, um non-distancing from others yeah um well paul thank you for all of that and there, there's a final question that I, I do like to ask all of my guests, and that is um, if you could recommend two things that uh, people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? It can be any two things. It doesn't have to be kidney-related. <laughs> uh, we've, so we've covered laughter and we've covered exercise. Yeah. So that, they're two things. Um, yeah. And so I probably need to say two others. Uh, and And... While my answer to this now is probably different than it was three months ago. Um, so I imagine um, now I think it's just sort of love and hug anyone that's that's close to you that you can, that you're allowed to, because um, yes. we don't know um, when when we're not. And also um, something that's more more important is just do something for someone else, less fortunate than yourself, in, particularly now, but um, and, and yes. it makes you feel better with yourself. So, um, so I, I think... You can only control what's around in your little community or your little sphere. And I think that's it. If you can make an impact on that little community because you're better than someone else or weller than someone else, then yeah. that's something that, that we all can do. Yeah, that's that's very nice advice. So thank you so much, Paul. It was great chatting with you today. Thanks. And that was Paul Bennett, kidney disease expert and advocate of improving the well-being of patients on dialysis. I'll put a link in the show notes to Paul's profile on ResearchGate. There you can find his published research papers. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast today, and I do hope that you found something useful and possibly inspirational in my chat with Paul. You can subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, on YouTube, 
hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Simply search Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. We put in a lot of time, money and effort behind the scenes. So if you enjoy Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and would like to make a contribution, you can do so via Patreon, PayPal or by Amazon. And this will help ensure we continue to provide you with excellent content. Please visit the Contribute page on my website. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will help me source excellent guests. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, Think well.